Hello, I'm Christopher Mayer, Colonel of the United States Cavalry Retired, and you found your way to the ancient art of modern warfare. I want to begin with a short apology for the delay in producing this episode. Events of the past couple of months have made theorizing on space power seem relatively unimportant. Instead, I found myself writing articles on policing. These are available online at the International Policy Digest. Aside from that, Netflix stepped in very nicely with its new series, Space Force. But now the time has come to finish what I started, and once again, I'm joined in this by Colonel Jason Altieri of the U.S. Air War College. Today, Jason and I will discuss the lessons that the development of air power theory may have for space power theory. Hello, Jason. Hello, Chris, and thank you again for allowing me on your podcast. And as always, we'll start with the obligatory disclaimer that the views expressed by myself in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Air Force, Department of Defense, or the United States government. Jason, as we move into this, I think that there are parallels between air power theory and space power theory that make the history of air power particularly relevant to space power. Operations in the land and sea domains existed for centuries before anyone, whether Sun Tzu, Thucydides, Machiavelli, Clausewitz, or Mahan, set out to describe theories of warfare. That's right. And in every war, men have attempted to define the distinctive patterns of strategic behavior among an expanding list of geographical and political environments in which wars have fought. War theories address both the nature and the character of war. And as you mentioned already, the classical military theorists examined the evolution of land and sea warfare and military thought over the last 2,000 years. But this wasn't true with air power. Aircraft in the way of balloons and other lighter-than-air vehicles were in fact used by armies since the French Revolution. But it took the arrival of armed aeroplanes, as the Wright brothers described it, to have a direct effect on the course of battles, campaigns, and perhaps the war itself. Doctrine for fighting in the air quickly developed. The first doctrine, or dicta as they were called, was developed by the German ace Oswald Bulke and improved by Manfred von Richthofen. These teachings have influenced fighter tactics to this present day. Although these dicta were very important for describing how to fight an airplane, a squadron, or with Richthofen, a wing, they did not address how to use air power to win a war. That's right, Chris. Uh, the first and most enduring attempt at addressing how air power theory can win a war was published in 1921 by the Italian general Giulio Duhay. Duhay's major premise was that a quick victory could be won by an early air attack on the enemy's vital centers, while surface forces worked to contain the enemy on the ground. His major assumptions were that air power is inherently offensive and that the bomber, quote, will always get through. All future wars will be total wars. Civilian morale can be diminished by direct attacks to include the use of chemical warfare and that the dominance of the defensive form of ground warfare would be permanent. Duhay would further go on to advocate that the first step in winning is command of the air, and that your next priority is destroying those vital centers and civilian morale targets. And once command of the air is secured, it must be used to punish civilians so that they will coerce their own government to come to terms 
in order to end the suffering. In Duhay's view, this would happen so rapidly that total suffering will be less than that experienced in the trenches. It sounds shocking, but it's not entirely new. Even Clausewitz described armed forces, the land component of warfare, as being the shield that protected the civilian population and the infrastructure, those soft areas that the civilization depends upon. And what Douay saw was that that shield was no longer relevant because aircraft could fly over the shield and attack those targets directly. Now, his theory was rejected by the Italian military for being too fantastic and at the same time too cruel. As Jason brought out, among other reasons, was that he was advocating the widespread use of chemical warfare at the same time that most nations of the world were trying to ban it. But outside of Italy, his theories had a different reception. Very much so. The American General William Mitchell's theory on air power have probably had the largest profound and most lasting effect on air power doctrine and the employment of air power. He's often referred to as, quote, the father of the modern Air Force. The premise of his theories was in his belief that an independent and equal Air Force serving under a unified Department of Defense was the most efficient means of defending the United States. Some of Mitchell's assumptions that he made were that command of the air is a prime requirement. Like Duhay, he believed that air power was inherently offensive and that the bomber, again, would always get through. Uh, Air power can defend the continental United States more economically than can the Navy. He believed that naval warfare is obsolete, that airmen are a special and elite breed of people, and that they alone can understand the proper employment of air power. And finally, that civilian morale is a fragile thing. And once this air superiority is established using these assumptions, it could be exploited at will in various operations against vital centers. Now, sometimes these vital centers were vaguely described, but usually they were seen as industry, infrastructure, and agriculture, which, when destroyed, would lead to the collapse of the civilian morale. But, Jason, these ideas weren't limited to just Italy or the United States, were they? Absolutely not. British air power theory developed along the same lines. The British chief of the Royal Air Force, Hugh Trenchard, also believed that the best use of air power was against the enemy's country's vital centers. Unlike Duhay, he rejected strikes on the general population, at least in Europe. Like Mitchell, he called for attacking enemy industrial centers, but not to eliminate the enemy's means of production. Rather, he thought attacking industry was the best way to attack enemy morale. In practice, however, the RAF did concentrate on population centers. And that was against Germany. So that leads us to discussing about the German air power theory, which to say that there was a German air power theory would be overly generous. Throughout the war, they remained fixed on the idea of using air power as a supporting arm exclusively. They were very effective at this, but they completely missed any opportunity for using air power as a strategic advantage. Even during the Battle of Britain, the first all-air campaign, The goal was destruction of the Royal Air Force to enable a sea invasion and subsequent ground campaign. So, Jason, as history shows then, Douay's theory, as matured by Mitchell and Trenchard, was prescient. It enabled Allied victory in Europe and the Pacific, and it guided air power theory to this very day. As such, 
I think it's a model for the development of space power theory. Jason, you agree with that? Absolutely not. I use the example of the American General James Doolittle, who, with the help of Marshall and Eisenhower, pushed effectiveness over efficiency. And while the measures that Doolittle would implement during the Second World War increased the risk to his air crews and diminished their proficiency in strategic bombardment, they ultimately helped reduce the risk to friendly ground personnel. Notably, it contributed to a larger effort in defeating the German armed forces. In short, Doolittle was not afraid to place effectiveness over efficiency to extract the, quote, higher profit from his forces. The lessons of Doolittle's performance as the 8th Air Force commander are surprisingly relevant in the 21st century. And although modern air forces do not marshal air formations consisting of thousands of heavy bombers, today's numbered air force commanders encounter many of the same challenges that Doolittle faced in January 1944. For instance, the debate over the best application of air power in support of friendly ground forces, which still exists to this day. Well, if our air power theorists were so wrong in the beginning, what can we learn from the air power theory experience to guide the development of space power theory? Well, our air power theorists imagined opportunities that the air domain might offer to change warfare at the strategic level. Uh, Duhay saw the ability to strike at the enemy's hearts, unprotected by ground and naval forces, but his followers came to the wrong conclusions about how to exploit that domain. But they recognized that it exists and it could fundamentally change the face of warfare. I, I do want to say that when I asked the question about using their theory as a model for today, that I was, in fact, being sarcastic, and I'm glad that you picked up on that so well. Our theorists also insisted that the Air Force must be an independent service. Although this independence has proved valuable, Douay and others believe that air power must operate independently of land and sea operations. Practitioners in World War II, as Jason just pointed out, such as Doolittle, had to revise those notions. Although air power was best used as an independent service, its independent operations had to be tied to objectives exploiting the potential of all services. Further, the independence of air power had to be exercised in a way that enabled most efficient direct support to land operations, such as the German Luftwaffe did in the first years of the war. At the same time, each service retained its own aviation capability to support land and sea operations. Similarly, we believe that an independent space force is necessary to fully exploit the potential of the space domain. The question we have to ask is, how can that independence enable overall strategic success in all domains? Like Army, Marine, and Naval Aviation, does each service still need to retain their own space operations capabilities? And how do we assure that these complement each other? Chris, air power fundamentally changed military operations, but not military theory. Clausewitz applies just as well to the dominance of the air domain as it does to others. The development of space power theory may similarly change the way we do things, but in the end, the fundamental rules of warfare will still apply. In the next podcast, we'll try to put all of this together, proposing how we can move from the current space power doctrine to an overarching space power theory that brings new capabilities to the ancient art of modern warfare. Please come back.